so it's been a very, very long time for which I apologise, but we are back with another podcast and today we are talking metals and I'm sitting with Mark Thompson, who is a veteran of the metals and the mining industry. Mark, hello. Why don't we start by just giving uh, the listener a quick background on who you are and what you've done? Well, I'm currently executive chairman of Tungsten West, where we own the Hemmerden Tungsten and Tin Deposit in uh, in Devon in the UK. It's the world's third largest tungsten resource, previously owned by Wolf Minerals, who went bankrupt in 2018, and we acquired the assets in uh, 2019. And with any luck, it will be back into production and the world's second or third largest tungsten mine inside 12 months of today. But my background prior to uh, to being in mining is very much in metal derivatives trading. I uh, started my career in 1994 working for a couple of banks, Deutsche Bank and Rothschilds. And I spent 10 years at Trafigura, which is one of the world's largest trading companies, where I ran all of their proprietary trading and hedging on base metals and set up a hedge fund there and uh, took that to about a billion dollars under management trading metal derivatives. Great stuff. Now, we met because um, we were talking about tin on Twitter. Uh, Indeed. Uh, not, a, not a common way to meet. And you are extraordinarily bullish about tin. And I think you described the decade that we're going through and and are going to go through over the next five to ten years as being bigger than the noughties as far as tin is concerned and and perhaps tungsten and perhaps some other copper as well. So let's talk about that. What's the why is tin such an amazing story at the moment? Well, I mean, without boring you too much on the 60 or 70 year history of the tin market, um, it's Quite simply, there ain't enough and we need a lot more, I mean, which is a great story for any bull market. But I'll give a quick two or three minute pricey on how we did get there because it is quite relevant. Um, Start off in 1985 when the tin tin price um, basically collapsed. So in today's terms, the tin price was around $50,000 a tonne in 1985. And there was an organisation called the International Tin Council, which was um, a... um, an organisation allegedly owned or managed by about 30 governments around the world, producer com- countries and consumer countries, which was set up in the early 1960s to stabilise the tin price, to help the economies of Southeast Asia basically have predictable incomes. Um, there were six international tin agreements, um, which started off with a floor price in today's terms of around $16,000, a tonne. Uh, but crucially, there were always more producer members than consumer members of the International Tin Council. And it was one member, one vote. And they kept voting to raise the price with each succeeding agreement. So by 1985, they'd got the floor price up to $50,000 a tonne. But it ran into very large discoveries in Indonesia, Peru, Brazil, uh, each of whom uh, basically didn't become members of the, uh, the sixth and final agreement. Uh, and there was mega quota busting from other producing countries. And eventually, in 1985, the buffer stock manager, who was the gentleman in London tasked with keeping the tin price in a certain range, ran out of money. Uh, no, none of the governments walked away from his debts. But basically, the International Tin Council went bankrupt with debts of £897 million and holding about 120,000 tonnes of physical tin and derivative contracts for another 180,000 tonnes. So it's basically a huge cartel going bust. Into a multi-government cartel to keep the tin price up, which basically was acting against the underlying fundamentals of the tin market, and it ran out of money, and then it went bankrupt. And is that when all the Cornish tin mines closed down? Well, that was the start of the end. So between 1985 and 1992, the tin price in real terms dropped uh, 
nearly 90% in price. Okay. So um, I think the last one to go was South Crofty in 1998. The penultimate one was Giva in 1992. But effectively, yes, the Cornish um, tin mining industry, which had been around for 4,000 years, ended in 1998. On top of this, and this 120, 150,000 tonnes of tin that had to be sold into the market. Now, at the time, tin was a quarter of a million tonnes a year market. So 120,000 tonnes was six months of world supply. It's an enormous amount of, uh, of overhang. You still had the backdrop of an American organisation called the United States Defence Logistics Agency liquidating its stockpile. Now, the US had built up a stockpile of 350,000 tonnes of tin into 1960, from, our, from between 1947 and 1960, because they were trying to squeeze the Russian economy. And this was the dawn of the electronics age, and you needed tin for solder, and solder joins electronic components together. It's the glue of all circuit boards. And at that point in 1947, tin wasn't known to occur anywhere in Russia. So one of the things the CID, uh, CIA tried to do was squeeze the Russian economy on non-availability of tin. And they basically, in 13 years, bought three years' worth of world supply, which was a pretty stunning uh, achievement. Uh, the Russians managed to effectively break this um, uh, embargo and, uh, and squeeze by sending their army of geologists out to Siberia with pretty much the instruction of fine tin and don't come back until you have. <laughs> so by 1960, Russia was fully self-sufficient in tin, having found Provorsmoskoya and Sibonaya and Pyekakai uh, uh, up in the far northeast of the, the peninsula in Siberia. So uh, it failed, and then in 1961, the US started selling off the tin, and it took them 45 years to do so. So I first started getting very... So that was 2006 that they... 2006 when they sold the last little bit. Yeah. And just a, another little point which I always like to mention is the week that the US sold its last uh, little bit. They kept 4,000 tonnes. The last significant sale, which was at the lowest price that tin had ever traded in real terms, which was $3,875 a tonne, was the same week that they topped off the Strategic Petroleum Reserve at $147.30, which is the highest price anyone's ever paid for oil. So it takes a government to simultaneously sell at the low and buy at the all-time high. <laughs> I do quite like that. Uh, I do quite like that statistic. The um, there's something similar going on with helium. Actually, I don't know if you follow helium, but I the do. the United States helium strategic helium reserves they've they've sold their last. I don't know what the measurement is of helium, but they've sold their last bit of helium, and so now it's a totally. That's one of the reasons why so many helium stocks are. Are rising. Well, of course, <laughs> if yeah. helium stocks rising, of course they would, they would hardly go down. Um, well, of course, it's a byproduct of oil um, mm. um, uh, drilling and uh, oil production. And of course, the world's oil supply is not is likely to have peaked or will peak fairly soon. So helium production is not going to go up anymore. Um, and I think our decades of using it at children's parties rather than storing it and keeping it for scientific research will be something that is rude for g g generations to come. Really? Do you think in future generations we'll look back at how we decadently sucked in helium balloons in order to do funny voices as a sign of a bit like we might look at Nero and Caligula in Roman times? Decadent. Absolutely, absolutely. There'll be scientific experiments that can't be done because there won't be sufficient helium or helium will be too expensive. You, you, you think helium's that short? Well, if you go forward, if your only place of getting it is from oil drilling, then you have to drill for oil to get it. And if the world goes fully electric over the coming centuries and oil and gas production becomes banned, which to me seems reasonably likely, then the current supply of helium is all there will be. Now, I'm not investing for centuries type view, but I would say that's a fairly likely outcome. Do you think oil and gas drilling will be banned? Are they that down on fossil fuels? I think that's the direction of travel, isn't it? 
Uh, it's certainly a direction of travel, but... Over de- I mean, I'm the, talking over decades, over generations, sure. over centuries. Okay, well, that's over centuries is different. But I mean, you know, in the you know, there's this big argument now that there's a moral case for fossil fuels. Alex, glad not Gladstein. There's he's, I forget his name, but he's making an, an argument, and that, that's gaining some traction. And China's not holding back when it comes to uh, expanding its fossil well, fuel I, industry. I think we have a good few decades yet to make money out of. Um Oh, okay, fine. All right. So let's come back to tin. So we're the United States is uh, the, the cartel's gone bust. Cartel's gone bust. They've sold that stock off. The US has sold off their inventory, and crucially, because the tin price has been so low and way, way below the incentive price for new production to come on, no one's been looking for tin between 1985 and 2005. And I would even argue no one's really been looking for tin until um, until basically today. Um, there has been so much metal around and really big new discoveries of cheap um, to produce alluvial supplies. So tin basically comes uh, to the market in two forms. Alluvial, which is eroded tin washed down through river systems and accumulated through the the force of water and the force of gravity. Uh, And that typically is high-grade, produces a high-grade concentrate and is very cheap to produce. And the big producers of that be places like Indonesia doing... 60,000 tonnes a year. At peak, they did 140,000 tonnes a year. Myanmar, which is currently doing about 40,000 tonnes a year. At peak, that did 60,000 tonnes a year. Oh, so alluvial tin production is in decline. Massively. Well, you can look at Malaysia. Peak did 65,000 tonnes. Today, that's 3,000 tonnes. And in Indonesia and Myanmar are going the same way, are they? And they are going the same way because these are limited resources of the high-grade stuff. Okay. So the future tin market is necessarily hard rock. Okay. And that's much more expensive, it's much more difficult, it's much more capital intensive. And you need a much higher tin price to incentivise production and exploration in that area. Okay. We're gonna, I'm going to ask you what that tin price needs to be in order mm-hmm. to, for the market to get back into equilibrium. But let's just talk now quickly about what tin is used for. Okay, so 50%, give or take, of tin goes into making electronic solder and other solders. So um, effectively, as I said before, it's the glue that joins together components in printed circuit boards. It's unsubstitutable. In fact, almost everything that you use tin for, apart from alloys, is unsubstitutable. And that's uh, semiconductors, basically. Yeah, exactly. So joining together your capacitors and uh, your chips and whatever on a circuit board, those little dots of silver, they are electronic solder, which is about 95% tin, 3% copper, 2% silver. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the reasons I started getting very, very bullish back in 2005, 2006, is you had new legislation in Europe, which has now been enacted around the world, because up to that point, tin used to be, uh, solder used to be tin lead. So you'd have 70, 80% tin, 20, 30% lead. Mm-hmm. And you suddenly were going to the only thing that could replace that was 95% tin solder. So it was a massive increase in demand from the solder sector. And okay. that happened because you didn't want people breathing in lead fumes uh, in uh, guys uh, working in, uh, in, in electronics factories. Okay. And presumably, tin demand for solder is going to, is only, there's only one way that's going as we use more and more computers and more and more people get mobile phones. And there's so an offset and effect, which is miniaturization. So circuit boards have got smaller. So there's a linear. Uh, miniaturization effect that's been going on but there's an exponential demand growth going on so we are consuming the last numbers i saw for chip demand going forward are between nine percent and 14 percent demand for the next 10 years the compound annual growth rate now if you put that on the tin side and said we're going to see nine bottom end of that nine percent 
tin growth and then say, well, actually, there's a bit of miniaturization to bring that down. I think on the electronic side, you're going to see something around 5% per annum compound annual growth rate on tin consumption in solder. Okay. So that's 50% of annual tin use demand. Let's talk about the other stuff. Okay, so tin chemicals, which yep. again, I say, slightly substitutable, but not really substitutable. So tin chemicals get added to plastics like PVC as a stabilizer. Mm-hmm. So if you don't put stabilizers in PVC and you put it in direct sunlight, in a few days it will basically fall apart as a plastic. Okay. So you need these stabilizing um, uh, compounds in there. Um, even you know, at much higher tin prices for performance-wise, these things are basically unsubstitutable. You'd have to re-engineer a whole load of plastic plants to, to change out to substitutes. Um, you will see some substitution at much higher tin prices, though. There, You have a tin plate, so tin cans. Mm-hmm. So a tin can is about a 70 micron coating of tin on the inside of a steel, steel can. Mm-hmm. Tin is very non-corrosive. Uh, inert uh, and you know we had I think the tin can was invented in the 1850s it is the best way and the only way we still know without refrigeration to preserve food for Mm -hmm. multiple uh, months multiple years Uh, that grows basically as the world economy grows you know as people come out of poverty and they're not eating and buying food every day they have a store of food in their cupboards it tends to be in tin cans and dried goods etc so that's a market that just continues to grow in line with the world economy you have other uh, niche... What is that, 20% of tin demand, did you... Uh, that is around 14 15% of demand. Okay. So chemicals is around 16 17%. Okay. So that takes us to about 82 83%. Um, alloys, so tin plus copper equals bronze. Yeah. Bronze has a lot of uses in machine tooling because it mm. very, very finely mills. There's things that you can only really use bronze for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then other specialty alloys that it goes in as well. So you have actually something called... C, even though brass is normally copper plus zinc, you have something called sea brass which is copper plus zinc plus tin, which doesn't corrode at sea in a salt environment as well. So, again, that's pretty unsubstitutable. Um, you have about 2% goes into float glass as well. So all flat glass is created by floating molten glass on molten tin in something called the Pilkington process. And that's unique. You know, that's Everyone around the world does that, and it's unsubstitutable as well. Mm-hmm. So basically you've got a situation where you know the 360,000 tonnes a year, which is the tin market, is consumed in billions and billions and billions of individual items, okay. uh, most of which have very, very high degrees of pricing elasticity. So, for example, if in your iPhone you might have three grams of tin, which currently is worth seven and a half cents. Now, I would argue that price could go up a hundredfold, and you're still not going to not buy an iPhone because it's got seven and a half dollars and cent tin in it rather than seven and a half cents of tin. In yeah. It. So that's kind of the scale of inelasticity of demand that you see on a lot of lot of uses for tin. Okay, I've got you. And the main tin producers are China first. So China's a big mine producer um, and also uh, toll treats a lot of um, uh, um, concentrate that comes from Myanmar. So almost everything that was produced in Myanmar is smelted in China. Okay. But uh, mine-wise, they're up around 90,000 tonnes uh, of tin from their own mines. And they don't export any of their own tin? Uh, very, very, very little, very occasionally. Uh, okay. Only because there's a big arbitrage between the London Metal Exchange and the Shanghai price, which is currently, you know, there is no arbitrage at the moment, even though the Western world price is yeah. just rampant at the moment on physical metal demand. They're not letting stuff go out. Uh, Indonesia, I said, doing about 60,000 tonnes a year. Uh, Myanmar, 40,000 tonnes. And so, Indonesia used to be 80,000? 
He used to be 140,000. Oh, okay. 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 It was it was enormous. Now, so that's onshore mining in basically clay type deposits, mm-hmm. and you know you can have very very low grade tin deposits being very very economic to mine because you're basically just mining clay and washing them, mm-hmm. and you have coarse cassiterite crystals in there as well. So I've seen mines in Indonesia, which I've visited, which are running 300 parts per million and making really really good money. Um, but a lot of the production comes from offshore dredging as well. So okay. the state-owned company, PT Timar, and illegal mining um, is uh, very rampant in offshore dredging. Okay. Then other big producers, Peru does 20,000 tonnes a year, used to do 45,000 tonnes, all from one mine. San Peru Rafael. has got problems. Peru looks like it's going to go very left-wing, and the implications of that for the mining industry are not good. Oh, this uh, primary teacher guy who just run the, 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 the uh, first round of the presidential election Seems to make uh, seems to look uh, make or Castro and Morales look quite right wing by comparison. Yeah, and I mean I'm reading a couple of newsletters out of Peru, and they're all saying sell Peru. Yeah, well he, has, he, I mean, has he said, hasn't won yet. But he has said he's not going to nationalise the uh, Peruvian mining industry, but he will increase taxes. So he's basically just said whichever way I do it, I'm going to make it uninvestable. Yeah. Okay, so so wherever you look, there are threats to tin production. There are some upside places. So DRC produces about 10,000 tonnes a year. Yeah. There are massive deposits there. The world's best tin deposit is there, which is Alpha Min's Mine, BC, uh, up in the far north of the Kivus. Your risks there are political. They're security-related. They're yeah. not geology-related. Re- but it's it's all about security and logistics. So you know, increasing that, that, that supply in a higher price environment will happen, but it is challenging and it needs a lot of capital. Mm. Okay. So that's tin's uses. That's tin supply. Now, let's talk about the fact that the cash market is trading at such a big premium to the futures oh, this market. Is, I mean, I've been trading base metals since 1994, and I'm quite a student of the history of the markets. The backwardation, so the backwardation is when the cash price is above the forward price. And that's because there's no available metal today, and there's a hope that there'll be metal available in the future. So the spread's been out to 4000 back when the price was at $24,000 a tonne. So that's the biggest percentage cash to three months backwardation that there's ever been in any base metal. The biggest ever? Biggest ever. Okay, so the next biggest ever was nickel, which had about a 20% backwardation back in 2006 when that was $50,000 on cash and $40,000 on three months. So, And then the nickel price went bananas, didn't it? Well, that was when it went bananas. Then, okay. it, then it went back down to 8000 when it collapsed okay. again. Um, but that was really more of a technical squeeze than a, well, as much a technical squeeze as... Uh, was somebody playing the market? There were a couple of big hedge funds playing the market, and also there was, um, you know, there was a lack of sulphide resources, and then basically the market found pressure acid leach, and it found new technologies for processing lateral oxide type deposits as opposed to sulphide type deposits. Okay, so is somebody playing around with the tin market? Absolutely not. It's just too small a market for any hedge fund to be involved in. Uh, of any size and it's just not known to people so this is one of the most amazing things right now is it what is going on is fundamentally driven almost 100 percent. there's almost no speculation going mm-hmm. on um, and then on top of this so we've got a three months price let's say of twenty six thousand today we've got a cash price today of twenty eight twenty eight and a half thousand on top of that there's a physical premium for physical metal now normally that's a hundred dollars or two hundred dollars a ton and that basically is there to reflect the quality difference between what is deliverable to london metal exchange and what a consumer wants. So your delivery standard for London Metal Exchange Warehouse is 99.85% tin, which I would consider high lead, because your 0.15 of that is mainly lead. And most people want to use for electronics form, they want 99.9 or 99.95 quality. So you pay a premium for for the higher purity. Mm -hmm. 
Now, the current premium in Europe for any tin is around $2,000 a tonne. And I heard yesterday that in Baltimore in the US, it's $3,000 a tonne. So the cash premium today for physical tin is give or take five and a half, six thousand dollars over the three month forward price. And you just are still not seeing market, you know, metal moving. Now and this isn't even as if it's related to the Suez problem or whatever. There just is not enough metal. Um, effectively COVID shut down a lot of the mines in Peru, it shut down a lot of the mines in China, uh, it shut down a lot of the mines in Indonesia. So whereas 2019 production was around 365,000 tonnes and 2019 consumption was around 370,000 tonnes, it looks like the numbers for 2020 and probably 2021 are going to be around 320,000 tonnes of production only and demand at 385,000 tonnes. Okay, so there's a 60,000 tonne deficit. There's a shortfall equivalent to Indonesia's It has effectively completely emptied the supply chain from concentrates to metal to LME warehouse stocks to consumer stocks is basically the cupboard is bare. So you're in a really unique position position right now is I can guarantee you that tin demand going forward will equal mine supply because there's no buffer in the middle. Okay. So if mine supply stays around 340, you know, it's going to come back up because of... When you say there's no... I mean, I was going to ask you about the scrap markets. Gone. Oh, no. So about 20% of the market is scrap as well. So mine supply is about 280,000, 290,000 tonnes. And there's normally 60,000, 70,000 tonnes of scrap, which is mainly electronic scrap, reprocessing electronic scrap for copper, gold and tin. Um, Will they find more scrap, you know, market forces? Well, at high, look, at high enough prices, things that were, were, were uneconomic suddenly become economic. Yeah. But it's not really economic to process tin cans to recover the 70 micron covering of, of tin on the middle. Now, they do that in Germany because the law says they have to. Okay, but at a certain price level, anything becomes possible and people will just start, you know, looking for tin. So markets will balance always. The question is at what price and whether legislation changes Mm -hmm. that as well. Um, But I would strongly argue that that balancing price is much, much higher than we are today. Okay, that's my next question is we're let's say we're at thirty thousand dollars today using round numbers. Are we going to forty thousand? Are we going to fifty thousand? Are we going to a hundred thousand? Where are we going? Well, I mean, you know, if someone came in and did a little play and picked up some physical tin and kept it off the market, then that last number is entirely possible. You know, if a hedge fund wanted to get involved, then you could see something silly. I think if you look at the mine products out there, and there really are not that many mine products out there, because as I said, people haven't been looking because the price has been so poor. Um, you know, most of them need above 25000 probably $30,000 a tonne to be viable projects to work, to have, you know, 15 20% IRR on them. Now, I would strongly argue that if you've transitioned from a it, price... So that's a, a typical hard rock tin mine needs $25,000. Twenty-five to 30000 The projects that are out there need twenty-five dollars to $30,000 tin okay. to get financed. So, in other words, the grade is lower. So grade is lower, costs are higher. Yeah. You know, metallurgy is much more difficult in hard rock than it is in alluvial-type deposits. Mm-hmm. Now... We've what does been, Tungsten West need for its... For, it's not its... I it's, mean, it's main, we're mainly Tungsten, and yeah. you know, our break-even cost is 108 on Tungsten, and the current price is 275. Okay, so the tin so, is just a Brucey bonus. This is a very nice Brucey bonus. Okay. 400 tonnes of tin on top of our 3,500 tonnes of Tungsten. Okay, so let's look at Alpha Min's mm-hmm. tin deposits. These are endemic DRC. We're looking at ways to play tin now. And Alpha Min is a 600 billion Canadian dollar market. I think it's about that, yeah. Um producer in um uh, sorry 600 million not 600 billion <laughs> what's a what's a zero between friends uh in in drc uh and there's a lot of 
Uh, it's a previously war-torn area, isn't it? Disputed region, Kivu. And I think they've got quite a lot of Ebola there as well. They, they have had um, disease problems. I mean, this is really back of beyond middle of the Yeah, so it's deepest, darkest Africa. Northern Kivu's, you know, 50 kilometres off the main, main highway, and the highways are not really highways there. Yeah. They're not great roads. So, And if it wasn't for, for Alphamin being up there, those roads wouldn't be being maintained at all. So they've done an enormous good for the local community and logistics up there. What does what Tim Price... Does Alpha Min? What's Tin Alpha Min? Uh, I mean, look, they suffer from very high operating costs to get equipment and people in there. Yeah. But they've got the highest grade tin deposit in the world currently operating. They're around four or five percent head grade. So I think their break even's around eleven thousand. So they are making really good money right now. Okay. Um, so now we're going to look at um, Cornish. What's it called? Cornish. Cornish metals. Cornish metals up the road. They've got South Crofty going back into production and, and they've got this new discovery. What, what kind of tin price do they need to be viable? Uh, there's a lot of technical issues down there. I think, I mean, as I understand it, and I'm, I'm not giving investment advice and I don't like talking about other people's assets, you know, they, it, too much. They've made a fantastic discovery at United Downs. They've drilled 14 yeah. metres at 8% copper and 1.5% tin. Um, I think, I, you know, I've always believed on that asset that the cost of dewatering South Crofty and getting down to the deep levels, and I'm in no doubt at all there are hundreds of thousands of tonnes of tin still in the bottom of South Crofty yet to be mined. The problem has been raising the capital to dewater it and build the mine again and get down there. And I've always argued that they needed something else to generate the cash flow to allow them to do that. Okay. And I think what looking at from the outside, their business plan seems to be maybe we can get United Downs into production and that will produce the cash flow to get into South mm. Crofty. And I think that's a very solid business plan if that's the case. Okay, and you don't want to comment on what roughly... Did they need $25,000, $30,000 tin, do they? I haven't looked at their financial model, but, okay. um, uh, you know, and uh, I don't know as well as... Okay, I, I, I didn't want to put yeah. you... I put you on the spot a bit yeah, by asking you specific <laughs> questions. I went, So I, I was going to ask you about Afro Tin next, what, what kind of price, tin prices they need, but do you not want to talk about that? Well, I mean, again, again, I mean, I, I don't think they've published a model, but, you know, they're, they're, they're not just a tin, you know, it's a low-grade tin deposit, pegmatite-hosted, but as I said before, low... The most important thing in tin is not grade. You know, it's not like it's copper or zinc where grade is king. The most important thing on tin is mineralogy. Okay. Okay. The only commercially valuable tin mineral is cassiterite. Okay. And grain size, as in how big those crystals are, is so important. So as I said, you can see 300 ppm, 0.03% tin in Indonesia being highly profitable because it's very coarse tin and you basically mine the clay and wash it. And it's yeah. very simple and the tin drops out. But equally, you can look at some tin deposits which are running 1%. Yeah. And it's very fine-grained or it's not cassiterite. It's like malayite or it's valamophite or it's uh, stanite. And that's economically has no value. So, And that processing cost might be $100 a tonne mm-hmm. rather than $2 a tonne. So you have to understand your mineralogy and then that informs you about what your metallurgy will be and that informs you about roughly what your processing costs will be. I've got you. So... It, it, tin's going higher, and there aren't that many ways to play it. And we should yep. all buy. We should all look at ways to 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 invest in tin. I I, I wouldn't dissuade anybody from uh, from being having tin exposure. I, I I think there's a you know every once in a while in every great bull market, and and I think and, and I've been a believer for a while that this bull market Burundian based metals will be bigger than the O three O seven China one from the forties yeah. because I think there's uh, you know we're now. 10 years of way below trend exploration spend in the base metal space. The money that's often invested in base metals exploration and commodity exploration in general 
has been soaked up by Bitcoin. That kind of, you know, that high risk money has been soaked up by Bitcoin and, and tech and whatever. So that money's not been in in the space. And it's very simple. If you, you know, it's a very simple logical argument here. If you don't look, you don't find. If you don't find, you can't build. If you don't build, you run out. Yeah. Uh, and this is where we're at now. And it's never uh, been it's harder. The, it's the underinvestment that's gone on since, say, 2011, as bad as it was in it's 1999, worse. 2000. It's much, much worse. Much, 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 much worse. I mean, you look at the stats on copper discoveries, you look at uh, the pipeline of projects out there, you look at the same on tin, on tungsten, on zinc, you look across the board. And what's also really interesting is it's all happening at the same time on multiple metals. At the same time as the world is making a transition in the requirement of metals because of electrification and new green energy initiatives. So the most scarce resource out there, though, is not metals. It's people. You know, there are so few good people. Very, you know, uh, Campbell School of Mines, just up the road, part of the University of Exeter, recently, after I don't know how many decades, ended their mining engineering course because they just couldn't find students wanting to do it. You know, you need so many more people than you did on the last cycle because the big mines have all been built. So if you're like a, a super major and you want to add a million tonnes of copper capacity, 30 years ago, you had to build maybe two mines, two mega half million tonne a year mines. If they want to add a million tonnes of capacity now, they're building 10 to 15 mines. So that's 10 to 15 times as many mining engineers, geologists, mineralogists, metallurgists, professional people. These people do not exist. So, And this is the same point where you've got multiple commodities facing um, mega shortfalls, needing new production, needing exploration, and just can't. And there's just a lack of capital. There's a lack of people to do it. So the headwinds to bring a mine on stream on time and on budget. I mean, it's almost impossible to see. It, it is impossible to see it happen across the board. Okay, and you've mentioned before that we started the interview. Discoveries are no longer being made. And the majors are relying on acquisition rather than discovery. Yeah, and it's a business model they copied from the oil majors. You know, the oil majors went there in the 80s and the, and the UBHPs and the Rios that we had went there in the 90s and the noughties and said, yes, they do have exploration divisions, but basically the mid-tiers and the and super majors, they want to buy. They don't want to find, find so themselves. So they just rely on the juniors to do the exploration. Yeah, and if you haven't got the junior exploration high-risk money there because everyone would rather buy Bitcoin, and rightly so because people who bought Bitcoin 10 years ago have made an awful many, 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 many times more money than they would have made investing in junior exploration companies. Yeah. But, you know, there's a time for every trade. And, you know, I, I would argue right now that uh, exploration companies and, and, and base metal mines coming into production in the next year or two are like hen's teeth, and, and these commodity prices are going to drive outsized returns. Let's talk about copper. Where do you think copper's going? I think copper's going to be incredibly volatile, incredibly volatile. There is such a dearth of projects out there of any quality. Um, there's a lot of projects out there which people tout which have serious metallurgical, mineralogical, political, technical issues with them. Um, I think, you know, I, I'll sit there and say you yeah, the copper market compound average growth rate over the last 20 years has been 1.7% a year demand. I think you can basically say that would be 3% now with green energy initiatives. If that metal existed, that metal does not exist and will not exist. And in fact, it's very difficult to see copper demand, copper supply in 2025 being much higher uh, than, than it is now because you've got a load of old mines basically coming to the end of their mine life as well in 24, 25. It takes 10 years to bring a copper mine on stream. And what you're looking at now are these mega multi-billion dollar big porphyry projects in Canada and South America. You know, 0.2% kind of thing or with big strip ratios or metallurgical issues. It just doesn't work. You know, you need $15,000 copper 
for some of these things to be investable. What price is copper at now? 9,000. Okay. And I think, and, and all these things, you don't just go to 15 and say, we're at the price. And the same on tin, you don't just go to 30 and say, or 35 and say, what the price we need is you overshoot, then you come back and then you're going to overshoot again. It's going to be mega volatility in these markets like we've never seen before. Hmm. You tempted to go back to metals trading? I'm having too much fun. Look, here we are. We're sat on the edge of Dartmoor on a beautiful sunny spring day. I get to drive bulldozers occasionally. I'm wearing high vis. I mean, I've spent 15 years sat behind a desk pushing electrons around the world. I have little to no inclination to go back to base metal trading unless somebody listening to this wants to make me an outrageously large offer. Okay. It'll have to be... I mean, I have to say the setting of this Tungsten West Mine is the most extraordinarily beautiful place. And the drive over here, I, I came from Cornwall, I drove over the Tamar and up into Dartmoor. God, it was just stunning. Um, so, do you want to talk tungsten? I'll talk tungsten, yes. Um, is, there, there, is there any metal you're not bullish about? I know you don't like gold. I'm, I'm, I'm agnostic. I, I, I don't really mind. I'm agnostic about the gold price. I think there's better ways to play. For every story that's to buy gold, I'd rather buy copper because the same applies to them in terms of scarcity value and mm-hmm. uh, store of value. Um, I'm not particularly bullish on zinc at the moment. There's a lot of mine supply, just a dearth of uh, a smelting capacity. Lead, you know, I was by far the biggest lead trader in the world um, for for a long time. Um, you know, at some point, if we do finally transition away from internal combustion engines to fully electric cars, the world has actually got a mega toxic waste problem with a lot of lead out there. So I'm, I just find it stru- difficult to be structurally bullish on on, on lead. I'm very happy saying, you know, I'm copper, tin and tungsten. They're the three that I most like in the next uh, mm-hmm. two to three years. I'm very happy having all of my exposure on, three, on those three metals. Copper, tin and tungsten. Um, well, great stuff. Mark, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Um, thanks so much for coming on and, uh, and sharing y- your knowledge with us. Extraordinary knowledge. And we should all be looking out. Tell us about Tungsten West. It lists. Tungsten West will be listing in probably July. This, if we can get it away this side of the summer in July this year. Uh, Hanneman Partners and VSA Capital leading the listing for us. Uh, probably on AIM, possibly main list, possibly on Aquas. We haven't decided on the exchange yet. And then my main tin exposure is Anglo Saxony Mining, which has about a quarter of a million tons of tin in the ground in Germany, in uh, which we haven't talked about, but. Uh, well, we can talk about it now if you well, like. Right. It's, um, it's an old uh, Russian exploration project, um, which was basically ready to mine in 1990 when the Berlin Wall came down. It flooded, it got forgotten about. Uh, we've done a lot of technical work on it over the last five or six years, and uh, we're in the process. We've got a pre-feasibility study on it, and the next couple of years we want to take it through a definitive feasibility study. But that should list in Q3, Q4 this year. Uh, I'm very bullish on that one as well. It's a really nice deposit. And it's got, and it's not just uh, tin there. We've got zinc and indium in, in commercial pro, you know, um, uh, byproducts in that as well. So it's really about critical mineral, minerals and specialty minerals, which I think becomes an increasingly important theme. When you start talking about resource nationalism and the role that China's played, you know, what that, their position in Africa and Southeast Asia and what they control metal-wise, you know, it really looks like it's going to be very difficult for the West to catch up with the security of supply position that China has spent 30 30 years getting themselves into. Mm. So anywhere that you've got economic deposits of critical minerals in the Western world, I think we have a premium product there. We have a premium structure as a company because we're strategically important. Okay. And I just talked about tungsten. You know, 80% of the world's tungsten is mined in China. You can't have an oil and gas industry without tungsten because you need tungsten carbide to make drills. 
You can't have a car industry without tungsten because you need tungsten tooling to make the components and you need tungsten carbide to cut the metal. You can't have an aerospace business without tungsten. You know, and China controls 80% of the supply. So strategically, I don't think there's anything more strategically important other than maybe one or two of the rare earth metals like neodymium on the magnet side, where China also controls 80% of the world supply. They have the power to turn the world economy off if they so choose. When you hear Nigel Farage, you know, he's won his battle, uh, um, you know, to get Britain out of the EU and he keeps talking about China as his next big theme. Is, is he got that right? I mean, it just when I look at, like, China gold holdings, you talked about China tungsten holdings, China's position in Africa, even China's Bitcoin mining. You know, it just, it, it, when it wants to, it, it, you know, if, if, if the world has given a choice between uh, the US dollar backed by its military and its petroleum or Chinese yuan backed by gold, and it, and it has... You know, China has way more gold than it says it does. Um, you know, a lot of people are going to choose China. I mean, I, I see us as so vulnerable. Uh, and particularly if, if we get the inflation, eventually get the inflation that everyone's worried about because of all the money printing that's gone on. I mean, do, do you have any thoughts about that? Well, I mean, strategically, the Chinese government has been ahead of the curve for 30, 40 years and thinking strategically about these things rather than just leaving themselves open to laissez-faire market economics, um, which is why the Western economies are desperately short of all of these key, key, key materials. And it's great that you've had enormous economic growth in the West through tech companies, but tech all runs on hardware. And if you haven't got the metals to produce the hardware, then the tech has little or no value. Mm-hmm. So I think we need a little bit of a reimagining um, of the way our economies are run. It's not too late. It, it's pretty close to being too late and China's won but it's not too late if governments really understand the problem and actually and actually mobilize resources and people who understand the problem to do something about it and it it needs centralized government control to do something I I I get hints at the I just think we're asleep at the wheel we're just arguing about stuff that's irrelevant and we're just getting bogged down in all this domestic dispute and and we've lost sight of the big picture well, I think, you know, if you look back through history, you know, most empires collapse in um, basically debt default, hyperinflation and, um, should we say, social, um, social change. And if you look at where the West is right now, we're possibly on the cusp of uh, all of that. I mean, we seem to spend our time um, debating which toilet, which gender can use, and China is spending its time working out where it's going to get the next 50,000 tonnes of cobalt from. Yeah. A... Differences in approach. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not knocking one or the other, but um, one of those wins and one of those doesn't. Yeah. Um, Mark, thank you very much. Thank you. Um, it's been a how pleasure. long till Anglo-Saxon, Anglo-Saxon will actually be producing tin? So probably around three years. Okay. But we've got, um, we've got some other plans for the company as well to really improve our critical minerals presence in Germany. You know, it's the key manufacturing economy in Europe. You know, we've got a lot of metal in the ground and we've yeah. got some other plans that we're going to add to. Once we're listed, we've got some more capital in the, in the, in, in the, uh, in the coffers. We've got some, uh, some other interesting plans which we hopefully will share on the listing. Okay, well, we'll keep our eyes out for that. And if, Mark, if people want to find out more about you and what you do, what's the best way to sort of... Should we follow you on Twitter? What's well, the best way? At ME Thompson 72 on Twitter. Um, I'm pretty good at answering questions. 
There's a whole series of tweets on there if you want to learn about how the copper market works now. Copper trades, the same for tea and the same for tungsten. Um, so, yeah, and contacted me through there. Great stuff. Well, Mark Thompson, it's been a real pleasure. And uh, what can I say? Buy tin. Uh, thanks very much. Cheerio. Bye-bye.